Good morning. Uh, lovely to see you all. For those of you um, who don't know me, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the uh, preaching team here at C3. Um, my first time preaching on this huge platform, so I'll be walking up and down trying to use all the space that we've got. Um, so, good. Right. Very exciting for me. Also very exciting for you because it's the beginning of a new series. Um, there we go. Appropriate response. And it's a really interesting series. I'm looking at some quite thorny, quite tough theological questions. Just to give a bit of context, uh, particularly for anyone here who's uh, new, Steve and the team, when they're putting together these, these series of kind of messages that we do, try to find kind of different beginning points for different series. So some series, the beginning point is definitely, for example, a book of the Bible or part of the Bible. So we've had series recently on things like the Psalms or series about the parables, and that's the starting point. Other series that we've looked at, the starting point is really some kind of life issue or something kind of very practically applicable. So it might be, for example, to do with marriage or relationships or money or something kind of very practical, kind of everyday life. Um, but it's good also to have in the mix occasionally a series where the starting point is something kind of theological. Theology is really basically our understanding of God, but it's broader than that because it also includes our understanding of ourselves in relation to God and God's kind of relationship with the world. So it's good sometimes to have a message that that's the starting point. But in all of these messages, obviously you hope you get a bit of everything. You know, if there's no good having a message that's a life-applied message if it's not grounded in the Bible and if it's got some kind of dodgy theology associated with it. So, and the idea with this message is obviously it starts with theology, but very much grounded in Scripture and what the Bible has to say about God, but also trying to make something that's practically applicable to our lives and the lives that we lead. So that's what we're aiming to do both this morning and through the series. And today's question we're looking at, a nice simple one to get us going, is um, about suffering. So if God is a loving God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Um, and variations on that question. Apparently, um, in a survey that was conducted, and I think this is not an uncommon result, um, when people are asked the question, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? Apparently about 20% of people ask something that relates to this question about suffering. More than any other question that people have, this question about why is there so much suffering in the world? So it felt like a good one to start with. Um, and I guess uh, probably in this room today, there's three different categories of people, maybe. Um, the first category of people, probably the majority, are Christians, people who've made a commitment and say, you know, I've, I've made that decision of faith. Steve talked about baptism early, but I've made that step of faith. I'm committed as a Christian, but perhaps this is an issue that you kind of wrestle with. It's something that you kind of troubles you, something you want to think more about. You know, just being a Christian doesn't mean you have all the answers and you, you're completely there. It's the beginning of that journey. It's the beginning of that process. But you might think, well, I've, I've wrestled with this question for quite a long time. Or perhaps because of personal circumstances or maybe because of kind of global issues, more recently you've wrestled with this question more. And this is a really pertinent question to you at the moment. Perhaps you're a Christian, but you think, well, it's, it's not a question I hugely wrestle with. I, you know, I know it's a difficult question, but it's not one that I really wrestle with. But I would like to be able to give a better answer if somebody was to ask me this question. Peter says um, we should be ready to give an answer. And perhaps um, you'd like to be that. So that's the first category of people, kind of Christians. The second category, and I very much hope there are some people in this category in the room today, people who've not yet made that step, not yet said, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm going to take that statement of faith. But you're definitely interested. I mean, you're here 
because you're interested. You want to know more. You want to find out more what it's about. Um, and this may be one of those issues that you think, you know, if I was to make that decision, I would, I would need to understand a bit more about this issue because this, to me, seems something I really can't quite kind of square. And if I had a better perspective on this question, that might help me in making that decision. I guess there's a third category of people, and there may be some of these in the room as well, that have not yet made that commitment. And actually, if we're honest, you know, they may ask this question. I met people who ask this question. If I was to give a, a perfect answer that fully answered this question this morning, and just a kind of spoiler alert, that's absolutely not going to happen. But you know, if that were to happen, then probably that wouldn't be the end of it. There would still be another question, and another question, and another question. And it's good to ask questions, but sometimes we have to recognize that actually it's not, you know, as I said earlier, becoming a Christian isn't just about having all the answers. It is an issue of the heart. And sometimes the questions are useful, but we need to recognize that we need to be soft-hearted. We need to be open-hearted. And there may be something else that's holding us back from making that step. But at least beginning to understand this question more could be helpful. So that's, uh, I guess, who we're talking to. Before I kind of dive into the message proper, I've kind of got two disclaimers. Okay, the first disclaimer for the message is this really. When I considered this message and kind of looked at it, I guess I, I wanted to acknowledge and start by acknowledging the fact that when I look at my own life, I would freely admit that I don't think I've experienced a huge amount of suffering in my life. Okay? You know, um, which I'm obviously very grateful for. You know, I had a good upbringing. Um, you know, I've got a life I'm very contented with now. You know, a good job I enjoy. I'm happily married. Kind of, kind of nice house. You know, good health. All those kind of things. And I, you know, I recognize that I'm talking to a room and there will be people in this room that have experienced significant suffering, significant tragedy or trauma in their lives. And what I didn't want in any way was to appear kind of crass and insensitive and say, well, it's, you know, it's easy, you just, you know, dot, 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 it all makes sense. And that, you know, and people to be sitting there thinking, well, it's easy for you, but what about me? You know, in my situation, that just doesn't make sense. You know, I, I acknowledge that's a difficulty. And of course, as soon as we go beyond this room and look at the world around us, there is so much suffering and so many people who've suffered to a greater degree than I have. But still, I believe, hopefully this morning, there is something I can bring to this issue. Um, the second kind of disclaimer I wanted to get, and I kind of hinted at this earlier, is this. You know, this is a very complex and deeply challenging issue. And just to let you know, I'm unlikely in the next half an hour to give you a completely satisfactory answer. I mean, let's just be... I just wanted to kind of gently deflate your kind of expectations this morning. You know, this, this is something that has challenged some of the greatest theological and kind of academic and philosophical minds for, you know, generations. So probably in the next half an hour, I'm not going to wrap it all up neatly. You know, there are some things that are beyond our understanding. But uh, the good news is we've um, got lots of expert theologians around the building so if you see, you know, if there's something I don't mention this morning that you don't understand, you see someone wearing a T-shirt that says, ask me anything, then just go and go, go with any follow-up questions and ask them. They'll be more than happy to help. Um, for anyone who's visiting, that's not true. They're the stewarding team, but they are very helpful, and they may have all sorts of theological insights as well. Right. But my aim this morning, therefore, isn't to give you a neatly packaged answer. There it is. Solved. Move on. It is, if anything, and I think this is the aim for the series, really, to provoke our thinking further around these issues possibly to encourage us to further study, further reading. There's some fantastic books on this subject, further discussion, maybe in a midweek connect group, maybe in other settings, family, friends, perhaps to think through these issues more deeply for ourselves, a springboard for further exploration rather than simply, here's the answer, off we go. So in that context, disclaimers aside, there are four 
kind of points I want to make um, this morning. You know, this is a question that we might ask. It's a reasonable question to ask. And we should never feel bad about asking this question. Don't think by asking this question somehow we are going to offend God and God is surprised that we're asking this question. One of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible is so open about this question and the reality of suffering. You know, the Bible doesn't try to push it under the carpet and pretend everything's rosy. If you read books like the Psalms and you see what, you know, the, some of the, the things that David says or you look at other books like Ecclesiastes and Job, I mean, the life of Job, it is there right in the middle of the Bible and it's all about the issue of suffering. So the Bible doesn't try to push it under the carpet, so neither should we as the church. So it's a reasonable question. And, you know, obviously, if we had more time, we could look at all the different ways in which there is suffering in the world around us. And the question, I guess, boils down to, you know, if God is all-powerful, he can do anything, and yet he is also all-loving, then why does he not just solve the problem of suffering in the world? He could just do it like that. Why doesn't he do it? And it's a legitimate question. But I believe whenever we look at this area and this consider this question, we need to also recognize this. I believe that God asks us the very same question. You know, it's easy for us maybe to say, well, God, why do you allow so much suffering in the world? But I believe first and foremost, God says to us, well, tell me this, why do you allow so much suffering in the world? In the very opening chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates and then populates the earth. And then this is what he says, and this is verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Ro uh, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in the very first chapter of the Bible, we see God giving authority and dominion over the earth to mankind. So when we ask about this issue of suffering, we have to recognize that we hold a responsibility. And we've been given that position, and actually in many ways, looking at the world around us, we've failed in um, conducting that authority. You know, a huge amount of suffering in the world is man-made. You know, we can think of, of course, you know, this evil dictator or this person over here that has caused huge amounts of suffering, and you know, it's easy enough for us to think of those people. But that's not really what I'm talking about, because that, in a sense, too quickly pushes us off the hook. Actually, I think in many ways, each and every one of us, possibly indirectly, are those that cause suffering. You know, obviously, if I hit someone in the face, that causes them to suffer. Um, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I, I'd love to be able to say, I mean, when I initially wrote this, I, I wrote, you know, I've never hit anybody in the face and caused them suffering. Um, unfortunately, that's not quite true, because I remembered earlier this year I did. Um, and which made it worse was it was, it was a... Uh, child at the school I teach. So it was slight, slightly awkward. Before anyone calls the police, the, um, the situation was this. I was, um, it was on an activity holiday, an adventure holiday, it wasn't an adventure, um, and we were in groups and we were doing um, a kind of blindfolded um, assault course. And the idea was you go around pairs and one person was kind of telling you what to do and you kind of worked it out and, you kind of, and it took about 20 minutes and there was this boy who um, had no, no one had kind of volunteered to go, and so I'll go. He seemed a bit nervous, so I thought, well, I'll go with him. We kind of were doing it together, going through, blindfolded, 20 minutes. He was very good. I was expecting him to be awful, and I was just about at one point just to drop off the back, but he was very good. Um, and then just near the end, I think possibly prompted by one of the instructors, one of the other pupils thought it would be funny to get one of those long bits of grass with a bit of kind of heather on the end and just kind of put it in my ear as a joke. And unfortunately, I was kind of completely blindfolded, 20 minutes. I just felt this thing in my ear, and instead it was a reflex. I just went, 
oh, like that, and connected with this boy's face, and he was on the ground in tears very quickly. But so it was slightly unfortunate. He did see the funny side of it, and it was all right, and I did obviously um, check that he was okay. But intentionally, I have never hit anybody in the face, but it's not enough to say, well, therefore, I've not caused any suffering, because that's obviously very direct. But in many indirect ways, perhaps I have. You know, what about if I was to buy in the middle of town a very cheap T-shirt for two pounds? And I was to buy it, and, you know, I guess I know that if I'm buying that T-shirt for two pounds, that somewhere, possibly the other side of the planet maybe, but somewhere there is someone, a child, or maybe someone else in a sweatshop working in terrible conditions for a pitifully low wage in order for me to be able to do that. I mean, I know that, you know, I know enough about the world to know that's the case. Or if I buy these bananas rather than the fair trade ones, or if I do that, there's decisions that we make and we know that there may be a consequence. And if we do that, then actually we are responsible, maybe indirectly, but we are responsible for contributing to a system that causes suffering. So we cannot so easily just step out of that and say, well, it's not me. But even if we were to put to, to one side all those areas where you could say, well, man has caused that suffering, I caused that suffering, even if you put those to one side and say, well, let's talk about earthquakes, because people don't cause earthquakes or diseases. What about disease? Well, the truth is that even in these cases, even though the, the suffering might not be man-made in origin, man or humans could do so much more to alleviate the suffering. Um, many of you know I kind of write musicals and things for theatre. I'm currently writing a musical about typhoid, which is a nice cheery subject. Of course it's a comedy, um, on in January. But one of the things that this, this show looks at, it looks at this kind of old, this, nine, this 1902 kind of health report. I'm not selling this musical, but... Um, and it lists all the different things that people died of, and the, the numbers have died of this, and the numbers have died of all these different diseases. And I guess the point of this is that the biggest statistic of all is that it was always the poor people that were dying in the far greatest number. You know, the inequality in our world is responsible for failing to alleviate so much suffering. You know, with diseases, you know, there are diseases that are still killing thousands, if not millions of people that should no longer exist on this planet. That we have the expertise, we have the knowledge, we have the medication, and we have the resource to, be, to make them a thing of the past, and yet, they have not spread, or the vaccines haven't spread, or, or the mechanisms for dealing with those diseases have not spread to all parts of the earth because of a disproportionate wealth. And even things like earthquakes, you know, it's, it's where the poorest parts of the world, where those earthquakes occur, where there isn't the infrastructure to deal with them, that the most tragedies and the most fatalities occur when those things happen. So even in the things that are not man-made, we recognize that actually if there was a much more kind of um, equality about wealth, that actually many of these things would be alleviated. And of course, the people in this room, if wealth was to be made equal, if it was to be redistributed across the whole of the planet, I think most of us in this room would end up worse off. So we are, in a sense, responsible for that. And we have a, an obligation, therefore, to do what we can as individuals and as a church to, to deal with those things. You know, if we look at the, the, the model in Acts, where it says they sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Right from the beginning of the church, there was this desire to take the things that we had and to use those to alleviate the suffering and the need in others. And I'm proud to be a part of a church that does that. And, you know, Steve mentioned that you know, even in the offering that we've just taken, that actually a proportion of that money is going to help and alleviate suffering beyond this church and actually um, to do with the refugee crisis. 
and it's fantastic to be part of something, but we should always push ourselves to do that. This is a congregation where there are people who sponsor children on the other side of the planet, where there are people that regularly give money to other charities. And that is something we should always be inspired to do more. Because actually, that authority was given to us and that responsibility was given to us to look after this planet. And how well do we do that? So that's my first point. I guess it's obviously not a full point because you could easily say, well, even if I was to you know, make sure I never did anything again that caused anybody to suffer, and if I was to do everything I could with the resources that I had to alleviate as much suffering as I could, if I wholeheartedly dedicated myself to that, the difference I could make would be tiny. It would be minuscule. And yet God, surely, as, a, as, an, as an entity, could just eradicate that suffering seemingly in one fell swoop. So why does he not do that? So the second point I want to make is this, and it's that suffering is a consequence of free will. Free will is the freedom that God has given to us to choose, the freedom to decide what we do and to operate based on that heart impulse. You know, um, when I printed my script this morning, I was very pleased. I had a few problems with the print yesterday, but it printed the script out for me this morning, uh, no problems. I didn't in any way read that as some kind of declaration of love on behalf of the printer. You know, this wasn't the, the printer saying to me, you know, I really want to serve you, I really want to be obedient to you, therefore I'm printing this script out for you this morning. That wasn't what was, it was just obviously following its programming. And yesterday when I was trying to print something out and it failed to do that, that wasn't some kind of mass rebellion on the point of the printer that was saying, I, I'm objecting to you and I'm rebelling against you and I'm turning my back on you and I won't print this out for you, I'll print it upside down. You know, it, it's just doing what its programming tells it to do. Sometimes I understand it, sometimes I don't. But obviously we would not, you know, I would never, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to run away with my printer and we're going to have this kind, you know, it's not, not going to marry my printer. There's not that kind of relationship with a printer because it, it just does things. It just follows its programming. There's no sense in which it can choose or not choose. Obviously a human relationship is completely different. It's something where choice is at the center of it. And it's that choice that gives us its meaning. And that's true for human relationships, friendships, marriages, you know, um, but it's equally true of our relationship with God that he has chosen to give us that choice. And of course, hand in hand with free will goes consequence. You see, you can't give someone free will without there being real consequences that result from those free will choices. If I was to say, or someone was to say to me, would you like some apple pie or would you like some rhubarb crumble? And I was to go, oh, I'll have the apple pie, please. Here you are, here's your rhubarb crumble. You know, I've had a free, you know, I've made a free will choice, but they've just given me what I didn't want anyway. That doesn't make sense. You know, there needs to be a consequence that flows from my free will choice. And even if the person who's serving the rhubarb crumble knows that actually I prefer rhubarb crumble and I might even be allergic to apples or whatever, you know, they think, well, it's better for you. It doesn't matter. As soon as they interject and kind of change that, even if it's for my own good, then actually they are overriding my free will to choose. And we see this um, in a bit more focus, perhaps, in the, uh, in the story that many of you will know, which is the story of the prodigal son. Um, and part of it's in your notes, um, for those who don't know the story. But the, this story starts with a son going to, it's a parable that Jesus told, and in this parable, um, a son goes to his father and says, I would like half your money now, and then he leaves and goes off and spends that money. 
And obviously the father could have chosen to say, no, I'm not going to give you half my money. And in fact, the father could have said, in fact, I'm going to make you stay here. I'm going to put you in your room. I'm going to lock the door and not let you escape until you agree um, to stay here. And that would have been the father's right in that time. He could have done that. That would have been his right. But he recognizes actually the principle of free will is more important. So he gives his son the freedom to choose. His son takes the money. He goes away. He spends it. And then very quickly... As a consequence of that, he ends up suffering. He ends up very poor, very short of food, starving, and trying to earn the smallest of livings by just kind of feeding pigs. And at that point, the father could perhaps again have intervened and say, I'm going to step in here, and I'm going to, going to kind of track down my son. I'm going to force him to come back with me because I know that he's suffering, and I want to alleviate his suffering. Let me take him out of that situation now. But wisely, the father chooses to wait. And he waits for the son to come to his senses, as the passage puts it. And when the son comes to his senses, it means that when he returns, he doesn't return begrudgingly, full of resentment, but he returns with humility and gratitude. So we see in that story that the, you know, the, the son made decisions, he used exercises free will, but there were consequences to that that caused suffering. Now the challenge is, in this story, there's a very clear link between the decisions that the son made and then the, the consequences that caused him to suffer. However, in the world, that link isn't always so clear. And often, one person over here makes a decision, and often they can profit by that decision, and it's other people that suffer as a result of that situation. And that seems much less palatable or much less fair. But it's reasonable to look into this passage and recognize that actually the son isn't the only person in this story who suffers. At the end of the, the story, when the son returns, the father says, my child was dead and is now alive again. So in a very real sense, I believe the father experienced what was tantamount to a bereavement when his son left. He didn't expect ever to see him again. He, for all he knew, this son was dead, gone forever. And in fact, in some ways it was worse because this, this bereavement wasn't the result of some kind of tragedy that no one had been able to help. This was this son's choice to leave. So the father, I believe, suffered. And I think if you look in details of the story and you look at the older brother, and we haven't got real time to go into it now, but if you look at the story of the older brother, I believe the older brother also suffered as a result of his younger brother leaving. And that affects his discourse and his journey. So we see in this, in this story how the, the consequences that flow from free will. And obviously in the world around us, those things happen on a much bigger level. And it would be lovely if we say, well, can't God just intervene and bring an end to suffering. But the truth is that every time God intervenes and brings an end to suffering, in some senses, he's also curtailing free will and free choice. And perhaps, you know, he could say, well, have free will. You are free to choose. And then intervenes, they stop. No, you're no longer free to choose. Let me put this right. Let me fix this. Sorted that. You're now free to choose again. Oh, let me intervene again. Let me stop your free will again. Curtail it. And, and, and it would be a constant process. And actually... I think the Bible suggests there is something of that process going on, that we don't know the ways in which God intervenes in certain situations and not in other situations, and we don't understand all that. And of course, you know, although it's good to wrestle with these things, we should never assume that we would understand everything that God does. You know, I don't understand all sorts. I don't understand how a mobile phone works. I haven't got a clue how it works. Possibly two or three people in this room might. If I can't understand how something man-made works, how can I hope or assume to fully understand every choice and every decision that God makes. But certainly, 
we see that there is this, even though God is all-powerful, there is a, a limitation that he faces because free will has consequences. The third point I want to make is this, and it's quite a, a difficult point, and it's certainly not a point that would be my first kind of point out of the bag if I was speaking to an individual who was experiencing kind of suffering or had been bereaved or was, um, you know, in some sickness. You know, it, it's not a very comforting one. Um, but the third point is this, and it's that we lack an eternal perspective. Um, as I say, you know, if someone says, it's, it's, you know, it's terrible, I've got this sickness, I'm feeling, you know, feel really ill constantly, you know, it wouldn't be a good suggestion to go up to them and say, well, you may feel terrible constantly, you just lack an eternal perspective. That's not going to help them, okay? What they lack is feeling well. And the problem with this is a, an answer is that it can seem like a personal judgment. You lack an eternal perspective. You just need to look bigger. And that's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm actually kind of looking at is a much wider spread kind of human perspective on how human society, particularly, um, you know, in certain areas of the world has changed. Last um, time I was speaking, I showed you some of my holiday photos, um, and it was of this monastery that we visited in Bulgaria where they had these amazing paintings. And as you walked into this um, monastery, there was a huge painting of the Last Judgment. Okay, and you had the Last Judgment, and all, in all its kind of gory, grisly details, so up here you had all the saved going through to heaven, and then you had all the kind of damned going in the other direction. And the idea of this painting, which is kind of was always put in the kind of um, Orthodox church over the entrance as you walk in. Every time you walk into church or into a monastery, what you're being told is it, the message is clear. It is all about eternity. I wonder how many of us as we walked in here this morning thought it's all about eternity. Possibly not all of us. Possibly not many of us. There's a, there's a shift in our perspective. You know, that church was built in a time when life expectancy was incredibly short. You know, 20% of people never made it to age one. 50% of people were dead before they made it to 10. And if you ever, you know, lived beyond 40, you were assumed to have done very well and lived to quite an old age. Life was very, very fragile. And life was also pretty grim and miserable. Most people, you know, life was not a joyous, you know, it was, it was difficult, it was hard, it was harsh, fragile. You know, death or tragedy was only around the corner. You know, our experience of life now is very different. We expect to live for 80 years. We expect for most of that 80 years to have good health, for us to be comfortably well off and to enjoy life. That is our expectation. And if that isn't realized in some way, we feel cheated. And the challenge is in that context where life seems so much more secure, eternity seems somehow less important. It's much less on our radar. You know, I, I struggle to adequately think about and plan for my pension, which in 30 years will be what I'm living off. You know, it just seems too far to be that important, but it's only 30 years. So if I'm struggling to think about things like that seriously, then, you know, it's even more unlikely that I can think about eternity and things beyond this life. And even, the, you, know, the, and, um, you know, humanity is increasingly short-term in its perspective. Everything is about instant and about now. Okay, you know, we love programs like X Factor on TV, or perhaps some of you do. Um, but, you know, the idea of X Factor is someone can go from being, a, you know, someone who's just singing in their school choir or in their school group, and they go on X Factor, and within a matter of weeks, they go from being that to being a global superstar. And there's none of that process where, bit by bit, training after training, year after year, slog after slog, they gradually make a name for themselves. It's that kind of rocketed to success 
in an instant. And it's that dream that people follow. The same is true with the lottery. You go from being poor to suddenly having more wealth than you can imagine overnight. You know, we've got um, Amazon Prime, which means that they, you know, even if I ordered something on Amazon Prime this afternoon, they would deliver it to me tomorrow, even though it's a Sunday. And it's, it's, you know, it just comes now. And if I want to watch a film, I don't have to go go down to Blockbusters and try to choose it out and then rewind the videotape. I can just download it now. It's just all there. Everything is instant. You know, life didn't used to be like that. And we, we struggle even with the short term, let alone having a full conception of eternity. And, um, you know, the, the challenge is that eternity almost seems beyond our understanding. But actually, one of the answers to this question is that this is an eternal question. This is an eternal message that we follow. This is not just about how I'm feeling today or how I'm feeling this year or even this decade. It's an eternal question. And I'm not saying, therefore, we should ignore the suffering that we may be experiencing, we know others are experiencing, and say, oh, it doesn't matter, just think about eternity. That's not my message at all. What I'm saying is, if we're looking to understand the theology of this question, we have to understand it in a much, much broader context. You know, this is about the truth that God is doing over time. We ask, why does God not solve the issue of suffering in the world. And the truth is, eternally speaking, he has solved the problem of suffering in the world. The truth is that God has done that when Jesus was sent, when Jesus died on the cross and suffered for us and defeated sin. And then when he rose from the dead three days later and defeated death, he brought an end to suffering. And the, the, the Bible points forward to a time um, and Revelation says this beautifully, in heaven, and this is what it says, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That is the eternal truth. But that is not the reality of this moment. I'm always struck by the fact that towards the end of the First World War, there was this situation where the war had been effectively won, and everyone agreed that the war had been won. But for the peace to work and for the peace to start properly, an armistice had to be signed by all parties at an exact point. And those parties had to come together in order to do that. And that had to be planned. So there was a period of a few days, just over a week, I think, when the war had effectively been won, and yet the fighting still continued. The fighting was still going on. And people were still dying, and people were still being maimed. And yet, the war was done. And in a, in, a, in a sense, we are living in that same time. We are in that in-between time. The war and the victory has been won, and yet the, 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 until the second coming, until you know, the kingdom is restored in the way that Jesus has talked about, in the way that Revelation talks about, until that happens, then we are living in this period in the middle where we are still experiencing the pains and the, the kind of groans and the wrestling of this world. But that is an eternal reality that we you know, as, as, as Christians, that's something that we believe and that's something we put our faith in. And we don't have all the answers. We really don't have all the answers. But that is why there's an element of faith that helps us to understand that. that this eternal story is completed um, when Jesus comes again. The final point I want to make is this, and it's, I guess, a more personal one. And it's just to say this, that, you know, as whatever we believe about suffering or whatever our views are, you know, suffering this side of eternity that I was just talking about, suffering will always exist. It will exist in the lives of people around us. It will exist across the world. Yes, we should do, as I said before, what we can to alleviate suffering, but we will never 
completely eradicate it this side of eternity. But what I do believe is that suffering is best faced with God. You know, whenever we experience suffering or those around us experience suffering, it is best faced with God. God is the one who can comfort us. God is the one who can bring us hope. God is the one who can strengthen us, can enable us to face it. And yet sometimes when we suffer, it causes us to turn away from God. Whether it causes us to turn away from God through anger or bitterness, or whether sometimes we kind of see this kind of suffering that we experience as some kind of judgment. You know, that's, the Bible makes it clear that it isn't a judgment, that when we are suffering, it's not because we have done something wrong and we're being punished, it's that actually God's grace extends to us, but the, there is still suffering in the world. But the point is this, that whatever might cause and push you away from God, you know, when you are suffering, that is the time you most need God. That is the time you most need to be close within his loving arms and receiving everything that he can give you to strengthen you and to comfort you and to encourage you. And secondly, we also need the strength and you know, that suffering is best faced within the context of the church. A loving and practically supporting community who can pray for us, who can counsel us, who can talk with us, who can stand with us or can find ways of practically supporting us. You know, so if again you're, you're experiencing suffering, don't let it be something that pushes you away from God and don't let it be something that pushes you away from church because it's at those times in our lives when we most need church when we most need brothers and sisters around us, when we both or most need the reliance upon God to be there for us. People sometimes say religion or Christianity, isn't it just a crutch? Absolutely it is. You know, when you are suffering in your life, when you're struggling with tragedy and things like this, you need something to lean upon. And the truth is, I believe everybody has a crutch. You know, for some people that might be drink or drugs or bitterness or it might be material excess or it might be even some things that aren't bad things like pursuing, you know, career and all those other things, all, you know, good things and bad things, but they are things that we lean upon, things that help us to kind of work through the suffering that we have in our lives. But actually of all those things, even the good ones, we are far better relying and leaning on God and Him being our rock, Him being the one who strengthens us, Him being the one we sink our roots down into when we face times of um, difficulty. My final observation is this. You know, strangely, when you look at it and when you see different stories and you hear different stories, seemingly there isn't a direct correlation or link between the amount of suffering that somebody experiences in their life and how happy and how contented they are, how at peace they are. Sometimes you see people and you look at their life and you think they've got everything. You know, they don't suffer, they've got, you know, they've got their health, they've got lots of money, they're well off, you know, they've got everything going for them, and yet they can wrestle their whole life and not find happiness, not find peace, not find contentment. And then there are other people you see and you look at their circumstance in life and you think they must suffer so much, I don't know how they can face every new day because their suffering should be, can seemingly be so great, and yet something within them Something about their perspective, something about their outlook means that they have found, regardless of those circumstances, some peace, some contentment, some happiness. And it's true that although you know, different circumstances can kind of affect people in different ways, something in, within us, our outlook, our perspective can be all important. And the context, I believe, of seeing our lives as children of God, part of an eternal story, I believe is 
essential in trying to have a context in our lives that means that when the difficult times do come, when tragedy or suffering affects us, that actually there is a bedrock of something within us that can then see our lives in a way that recognizes that we are children of God, that God loves us, and that we are cared for by Him. And that is the very best context for experiencing both the good in life and the bad in life. That actually trying to find something within us that whatever circumstance we face can find a contentment and a peace and a joy in God. And that is obviously a huge challenge, but it's a challenge that we can each work on wherever our lives are today, whether things are going well, whether things are going terribly. Actually, there's something within us, a closeness to the Spirit, a kind of um, congregation with those around us that can help us to find that something within us that is actually the definer in terms of the contentment and the peace in our lives more than anything external, our hope and our trust in God. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we acknowledge that this is a world where there is much suffering and we recognize that in some ways we have a responsibility for that through decisions that we make or things that we haven't done that we could have done. You know, that you have given us the ability to make a difference. You've given us resource, you've given us your spirit within us. I pray, Jesus, that you would help each of us to again be renewed in that commitment to the world around us, to be those that, whilst asking other questions, also ask the question, what can I do to alleviate suffering? What can I do to make someone's life better? Somebody next door, somebody the other side of the planet. What can I do? Father, we also acknowledge that there are many people, many people in this room, many people in this city who suffer. And we we pray that when we face those times of suffering, I pray that we wouldn't turn away from you. We wouldn't, you know, you would guard our hearts against a bitterness and anger that takes us away from the source of life itself, the source of comfort. That we wouldn't feel judged by you. We wouldn't feel that this is something that we have done and that it's our fault and therefore you judge us, but that we would know that your arms are always open. Like the father in the story, that whatever the son had done, that he was ready to welcome him back. He was ready to embrace him and restore him to everything he had for him. Father, I pray if we know people around us who are suffering, that we would be those that stand with them. We would be those that stand close to them and support and encourage them in times of difficulty. And I pray that these would be issues that, although we continue to wrestle with them, we continue to think about them, explore further, that they would not be issues that pull us away from you, but they would be issues that push us towards you. That our exploration would push us more into an understanding of you and into a relationship with you. And that was a relationship that would grow and flourish every day of our lives. Whatever our circumstance. We pray this in Jesus' name.